This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Three cards this week. Oh, yeah. We have card number 100, Jack Clark, first base for the St. Louis Cardinals. We have card number 397, Jack Clark, National League All-Star. And we have card number 28T, DH first base for the New York Yankees. All right, three cards. And how come we're talking about Jack Clark today? We have, to this point, completed 199 cards. So we figured let's go over 200 by doing three cards and pick a big name. We also have a bonus Jack Clark card in the 1988 top set, sort of adjacent 1988 tops Jack Clark card. I can't remember if somebody suggested Jack Clark. I'm sure that somebody has thought of him because he was a big name, one of the best hitters of the 70s and 80s, outstanding in 1987 for the Cardinals, almost won the MVP, and he had a prime number card, so card number 100 in the set. He also had that all-star card, and then he got traded or signed as a free agent with the Yankees. He has a Sabre bio by Dan Taylor and is in RBI baseball. So we'll get to return to the RBI corner with Brian, as well as have a lot of Jack Clark stories throughout. Before we get to those three cards, you said there is another card, a bonus card. So what's the deal with that? There is a special offer card, and it was an insert in every single pack. So in every pack, you would get this yellow card with a red top, and it said... 1988 Collector's Edition, Glossy All-Stars, and Hot Prospects baseball cards. On that was a tiny card of Jack Clark. And what you could do with this is send in six of these cards and a buck 25, and you would get one of these 10-card sets. Or if you sent in 18 of these cards and 750, you could get all six sets. And it was the best rookies and All-Stars in the 1988 set. There's also currently an Instagram account called The Jack Clark Project. And this guy on Instagram has just grabbed 180 of these cards from opening (laughs) packs. And if you go there, he'll have a contest. And the contest is just name a favorite player. It's something easy for the most part. And then he'll send you a card. And you just have to take a picture of it. And he's trying to collect pictures of cards in different places. He's done 14 thus far. I did one of these and took this Jack Clark card on a tour of various Chicago landmarks over the summer. Anybody who opened 1988 Topps cards has a stack of these promotional cards. I never collected them and then sent them in. Never had a buck 25 to send in for one of the special sets, but I'm sure somebody did, and they're probably worth at least a nickel. (laughs) No, I definitely would have saved the 125 to buy more packs of the regular set or of other sets. If any of you out there have one of these cards, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. Let's go to the front of card 100, and here we have Jack Clark in the box. He's just hit the ball. Looks like maybe through the hole on the right side. This is a great-looking card. You can't see his face all that much, but he's got the thick eye black. The red top with the white pants and red and black stripe, it looks like, on the side. It's a really sharp-looking card. This shows Jack Clark's just a furious swing. Jack Clark played angry throughout his career. You could see it in his swing. He swung at every pitch as though he was trying to put it through the pitcher or through the wall. Even if this was a ground ball, Jack Clark 
gave that 120%. I kind of like this red top with the white pants combo. There's also something weird happening in the background. There's too many people on the field. Yes, there's a lot of people on the field. On the left-hand side, that looks like a photographer kneeling down, taking a long-distance shot at Jack from the other side. The sun's going to be in their face, though, so that, that picture's not going to come out great. But then on the right side of the card, David, I've zoomed this in on the Jumbotron to 300%. And this looks like somebody in a tank top with a big beer belly and jeans on. I don't know what he's doing on the field. That is not a regulation ball boy or ball girl. I think smoking a cigarette. (laughs) I cannot tell what's happening back here, but it's not safe. No, he's just standing at ease. He's just kind of standing with his... One leg kind of flared out to one side, got his weight all on his left leg and his left hip kind of pushed out. With that tank top, I can't get too much detail on the Jumbotron of what's on the tank top, if it's branded in any way, but maybe he's going out to the club. This is a person who is built like an RBI baseball player. (laughs) Or Tecmo Bowl, really, I think. It's a large person not really paying attention. Is there a baseball equivalent of too many men on the field? Because there are far too many people on this field. It's not safe. Very unsafe, but good looking card. Now let's go to the back of card 100 and we have Jack Clark 6'3", 205, right-handed batter and thrower. Drafted by the Giants in the 13th round of 1973. Born November 10th, 1955. Happy birthday, Jack in New Brighton, Pennsylvania, with a home in St. Louis, Missouri. Again, it says New Brighton Penna, not using PA as the AP style or whatever style, the the new top style. Other New Brightonians, Tito and his son, the recently retired Terry Francona, both of them went to New Brighton High. Also from the area, a cousin of Terry, a military commentator and former Air Force officer, Rick Francona. Pitcher, Giants 20-game winner, John Burkett. Raymond Kennedy, who was the architect of the Grauman's Chinese Theater. Sarah Jane Lippincott, who was an advocate for women's rights and a lecturer in the 1800s. And Virginia Carver, a pitcher in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League who passed away in December of 2022, all from New Brighton. Jack's full name was Jack. That wasn't short for something. Jack Anthony Clark. His dad, Ralph, worked in the coal industry. But the family moved to California when Jack was two, and they lived in Covina, where Ralph took a job in a paint factory. We discussed Covina in the Tom Bernanski episode, a city in L.A. County, one mile square and all there was the city's motto. When the city was founded, it was only one square mile. That was back in 1901, now seven square miles, about 51,000 people. And this was named by a young engineer. He noticed that the valleys near the San Gabriel Mountains created a cove around the vineyards. He combined cove and vine into Covina. Matt, while there is no little old lady from Covina, Covina is featured in pop culture. Multiple episodes of Knight Rider were filmed in downtown Covina. And a couple notable scenes from Wayne's World, including the Grey Poupon and Bohemian Rhapsody scene, were filmed in Covina. (laughs) So it sounds like Covina's streets are the best known part, because that would be Knight Rider and two scenes in traffic. It's a perfect stand-in for Aurora, Illinois. I couldn't find a list of high school alumni from Jack's high school because the school is now a middle school due to declining enrollment. They've combined high schools in the Azusa School District. So Gladstone High School is now Gladstone Middle School. 
But some famous Covinians include Academy Award-winning makeup artist Rick Baker, who did the makeup in American Werewolf in London and Ed Wood in Men in Black, Art Clokey, who along with his wife Ruth invented Gumby, Jason David Frank, who was Tommy the Green Power Ranger, who just passed away in 2022, Vince Neal and Tommy Lee met while attending Royal Oak High School in Covina, and some baseball names other than Jack Clark and Bernanski, Gary and Ron Renicky. Rob Wilfong, and Rangers legend Michael Young. Also legendary jockey Willie Shoemaker, who won 8,800 races, attended Covina High. At Gladstone, Jack showed the beginning of a trend that would be a hallmark of his career, which was having difficulties with coaches. One Sports Illustrated article described this trouble with authority stemming from a difficult relationship with Jack's father, who was described as a mean and angry person. So as a little bit of background, Ralph Clark, Jack's dad, had a a rough life. His dad was a drinker and a womanizer, and for his day job was a construction foreman, and he would leave the family for months and then come back, pay the family's grocery bill, and then leave again. As a kid, Ralph was really smart, and he liked to read a lot. He was expected to go to college, but Ralph's father spent his entire college fund and then died in a accident at work under the wheel of a truck. And what he left 13-year-old Ralph was the funeral bill. So at 13, Ralph went to work. He was a hard worker, but he ended up stubborn and mean, and he would tell Jack, you're never going to amount to anything. After pitching a shutout as a kid, his dad cursed him out. It didn't matter what Jack did. Sometimes he would do something big, he would get in trouble, get caught stealing, and his dad wouldn't do anything. Other times, he would mow the lawn wrong or do some minor infraction, and his dad would flip out at him. So Jack rebelled. Anything that would make his dad mad, he gravitated to. He ran with gang members, lowriders, and greasers. He got into trouble. All the while, he was a great athlete. But he had these issues with authority. So as a freshman, he quits the baseball team, saying that he had a bad experience with his coaches. His friend, Greg Johnston, talked him into coming back. Johnston himself would go on to have a Major League Baseball career, and Jack would have a good high school career as well, despite a broken wrist that kept him out of most of his sophomore season. He was also all-city in basketball, and in 1972, he threw a no-hitter and was named LA Times High School Athlete of the Week in April of 1972, just a great pitcher on this high school team that won the state title his junior year. As a senior, scouts are regularly in attendance, including a guy whose name comes up often, George Genovese. George said, what I saw was just another high school pitcher, a kid with a strong arm, but not much of an idea what to do with it. Jack had a rough game on the mound that day, and a bunch of scouts left as he was moved to third base. But Genovese stuck around because Jack also hit 517 as a senior, and Jack had a home run in that game. He said, I liked his swing, his bat speed, and his power opened my eyes. After the game, Jack was furious because the scouts had left, and he assumed that was it. He said, everybody's talking up Gary Renicky. Well, he can't carry my jock. I'll prove it if somebody will just give me a chance. The next day, Genovese recommended that the Giants draft Clark in that year's draft. And so, as you said on the back of the card, the Giants picked Jack in the 13th round, and he signed for $10,000 and went to rookie league. But before he went to Rookie League, he had a point to prove. Gary Renicky had been picked in the first round by the Expos. And throughout his career, Jack would have these little grudges, a personal grudge to him that nobody else really cared about, 
but one of them was with Gary Renicki early on, and both of the players were picked for an all-star game for the American Legion. Clark wanted to show him up. So he goes out and hits two home runs, and then gets sent off to Great Falls, Montana. The next three seasons, he was in the minors, and fantastic at the plate, but the Giants initially kept him in the pitching rotation to see what he had, and it turns out that Genovese was right. After five games, he had allowed 24 runs in 15 innings, only 10 of them earned, but his whip was almost three, so it can't all be blamed on errors. He just had an arm but didn't know what to do with it. His manager had to tell him he wasn't going to pitch anymore, and he said Jack wasn't happy to hear this. But his manager told him, you're too good of a hitter, and said every major league team has one 300 hitter. You have a chance to be a 300 hitter in the big leagues. That year, Jack had a 17-game hitting streak, broke it in one game, then went on to a 13-game hitting streak. On the year, he hit 321 with nine home runs and 54 RBIs. He was only 17 years old. The next year, the Giants skipped past low A, sent Jack to Fresno. He hit 315 with 19 homers and a league-leading 117 RBIs. At double A the next year, still only 19 years old, he hit 303 with 23 homers, adding 65 walks for an OPS of almost 900 and earned a September call-up. He played in only eight games in 1975 and took a walk in his first plate appearance and got his first major league hit in his third game. In the last game of the season, he went two for four with two RBIs. At that time, he was the youngest player in the majors, a couple months younger than Robin Yount, as Jack would not turn 20 until November after the season. In 1976, he might have made the team out of spring training, but there was a brief labor issue and a lockout that limited spring training, so the Giants preferred to go with veterans. So they put Bobby Mercer in right. Jack was never shy about his skills, and he said, I think I can do more things than Bobby Mercer. (laughs) Instead, he sent to AAA, and he was just as good, if not better, than at the lower levels. He missed some time when he was involved in a bizarre incident where a catcher threw his mask off while Jack was running for home plate, and the catcher's mask hit him in the face, requiring 28 stitches. But Jack hit 323, 17 home runs. He also had 16 triples. By this time that we're looking at this 1988 card, we don't think of Jack as a speed demon. We know from RBI Baseball he is the slowest molasses. But at this point, he had some speed. He was athletic, had power. And it's kind of hard to believe with all those knee injuries that he would go through that at one point he had double-digit triples. He did get another short call-up in September, played in 26 games, He didn't do much to show that he would have unseated Bobby Mercer, though. Yeah, an average of 225 for those 26 games. Heading into 1977, the Giants hired Joe Altabelli, their third manager in three years. Altabelli used a platoon in right field, which Jack was not a fan of. He didn't like to share time with anybody. He sulked and argued with the manager. According to Jack, I don't think I have any weaknesses. Some people have God's gift to play, and I think I have it. Meanwhile, Altabelli saw Jack's quality, and the two came to an understanding, went in a couple of weeks, and Clark was a regular the rest of the season. Jack hit 252 that season, pretty good with 13 home runs, not quite the numbers he had in the minors, but a good start. His ambition and, uh, let's say, good self-esteem 
showed in a 1978 article where he said, I have two goals. The first is to play in the World Series, and the second is to hit 400. And I think I'll do both someday. He did hit 367 in spring training and became one of baseball's best hitters. He had a 26-game hitting streak in July and earned an all-star appearance. On the year, he hit 306 with 25 home runs, 98 RBIs. All of those were in the top 10 in the National League. He showed a little bit of speed, 15 steals, 8 triples, had a 152 OPS+, plus, which was second in the National League, and his 5.9 wins above replacement was fourth. He finished fifth in the National League MVP ballot, and the Giants won 89 games that year. Later in his career, Jack would be a below-average defensive player, but at this point, he was okay. It wasn't a liability. He played 156 games. In his 18-year career, this was one of only six seasons where he would play at least 140 games. Manager Altabelli was impressed. He said, I can't imagine a player being so good, so young. You have to go back to when Mickey Mantle broke in. Jack has a high opinion of himself, and others are starting to see it as well. He follows that up with another all-star season, 26 home runs, 86 RBIs. While he made that all-star game, he would make four in his career, There weren't really any highlights in any of those All-Star games. He went 0 for 6 over those four All-Star games with one walk. This year, Jack was the best player on the Giants, but they only won 71 games. Altabelli got fired. Dave Bristol came in. By the next year, players were demanding trades. The team didn't get much better, winning only 75 games in 1980. But Jack was still good, hitting 289 with 22 homers in mid-August. But then he got hit in the hand by a pitch, and he's out until September. When he came back, he was publicly criticizing his teammates and managers, saying there are players who are jaking on this team, and Bristol doesn't do a thing about it. He's lost control. You can't tolerate jaking. Bristol got fired. Frank Robinson came in. This is the Giants' fifth manager in Jack's seven seasons. Then we get to 1981. The strike shortened the season. That was good for Jack. He hit 268 with 17 homers and drove in 50. The Giants were fifth place in the first half and third place in the second half. So they did not make the playoffs, but they did finish over 500 for the year, which it had been a while. After a game in which Clark hit a game-winning extra inning home run, Jack was on the radio and heard that Frank Robinson wasn't happy with the team. Jack said, I think he's more concerned about himself looking good. Speaking of looking good, we should take a look at Jack's 1981 tops card. Yes. This is one of the best unibrows I think we've seen. It's extreme. Like Sharpie, marker, thick, all the way across. I do like this. He's wearing this black Giants jersey with the orange writing across the front. I think the whole look is good. He's got some flowing hair. I mostly just presented this because of the very prominent unibrow, which was a feature of Jack Clark's early cards. And actually, even his 1988 card, I think he has a pretty good unibrow. 1982 was the most games that he played in a season, 157. On-brand year for him, 27 home runs, 103 RBIs, his first 100 RBI season. In August of that year, though, his simmering frustrations and willingness to just talk to anybody and pop off about whatever were made public in Sports Illustrated, where he complained about playing in Candlestick Park, saying it was too cold and windy, which those are normal complaints. Yeah, everybody everybody (laughs) complained about that. He also complained about the field, the batter's box, the chain link outfield fence. He said that playing at Candlestick Park kept him from being a superstar. 
He also felt like the press was mistreating him. They were quick to jump on his mistakes without acknowledging his success. I did read there were a couple times where he started jogging off the field before there were three outs. And the press would pick up on that. They'd make a big deal out of it. Then he'd hit two home runs and they wouldn't say anything. So he got into these little spats. But the article also included an extensive back and forth about Frank Robinson. Clark felt that he was being unfairly treated. Robinson said Clark doesn't help the team when he isn't hitting because he won't bunt, doesn't run the bases well, he's erratic in the field, and Clark wanted to be traded. He said, I don't want people to think I'm a troublemaker. Maybe some of it's immaturity, the way I talk about Frank. I should take a lot of the blame, but Frank also has to accept some of that blame too. Meanwhile, Sports Illustrated talked to a counterman on Lombard Street and said, I just wish Jack Clark would shut up and play ball. That's the quote you want to see in Sports Illustrated from the guy selling the papers. This kind of article earned Jack his nickname from teammate Vita Blue, Jack the Ripper, both for his swing and his mouth. His time with the Giants is numbered. We can feel that coming. In 1981 and 82, Clark had a mentor in Joe Morgan who told him that it takes more than hitting home runs to be a superstar. You know, like maybe being nice to people, but... (laughs) (laughs) That didn't really take. The Giants were good that year in 1982. They were in the playoff hunt until the last weekend of the season, trailing Atlanta by one game. They lost two of three to finish in third place. Jack finished the season with a 274 average. After that season, Joe Morgan gets traded. Jack loses his mentor as Morgan goes to join the Wheeze kids. And Jack said, I never had a player influence me like he did. Clark and the Giants were down for much of the year. The Giants are under 500. Jack hit under 270 with 20 home runs, only drove in 66. He missed 27 games due to injury. 1984, he missed over 100 games, first with a hand injury and then a knee injury that required surgery and ended his season in June. His last game was in Houston, playing on AstroTurf, and he could already feel this knee injury. He felt like Frank Robinson should have taken him out of the game on turf to protect him. He ends up having surgery and doesn't come back at the end of the year. When he's asked about it, he said maybe one of the strongest quotes about any coach I've read in this podcast, you want to try to hurt me for the rest of my life? You. Go die. I'll never play for you again. Jack wouldn't have to play for Frank Robinson again. Frank got fired in August. There's trade rumors about Clark. And he didn't have to play for the Giants again either, because in 1985, he gets traded in February. Jack was going to a team a couple years removed from the 1982 World Series, the St. Louis Cardinals. Jack moved to first base and slotted into the cleanup spot. Ahead of him were Vince Coleman, Willie McGee, and Tommy Herr, giving Jack a lot of RBI opportunities. And in 1995, he was great. Through August 22nd, he was hitting 281 with 21 homers and 84 RBIs. He also walked 78 times, so he had a OPS of 903. The Cardinals had just pulled into first place, but then Jack pulled a muscle that kept him out until September 19th. So the Cardinals picked up Cesar Cedeno to fill in, and in Jack's place, he hit 434 to keep the Cardinals going. The Cards win the National League East by three games over the Mets, and the Cardinals make the NLCS. Jack's first postseason experience is against his hometown team. This NLCS would give Jack Clark the finest moment of his career. The Dodgers take the first two games at home and then lose three in St. Louis. 
Through five games, Jack was six for 16. He also had five walks, three of them intentional, an 899 OPS, but all of his hits were singles. He only had one RBI in a 12 to 2 game four blowout. Game four was also unfortunate because Vince Coleman got rolled over by the tarp, and that knocked Coleman out for the rest of the playoffs. Jack had a pulled muscle in his ribs, and it kept him from getting power, so he didn't have a home run for a few weeks even before the playoffs started. Game 5, we discussed in the Tom Needenfuhr episode, that has Tom's matchup with Ozzie Smith. Smith, the switch hitter who had 3,000 career left-handed at-bats and no home runs. Of course, he hits a home run. We get Jack Bucks, immortal, go-crazy folks. And Game 6, if it's possible to set up a moment better than Ozzie Smith's, we have a moment just like that at the end of Game 6 for Jack Clark. So in the seventh inning of Game 6, Tom Needenfuhr comes on a relief of Oral Hershiser up 4-3. to three. Willie McGee's on first, and Needenfuhr gives up a triple to Ozzie Smith to tie the game. He then intentionally walks Tommy Herr and strikes out Jack Clark and Andy Van Slyke to end the inning. In the eighth inning, he sends the Cardinals down 1-2-3, and the Dodgers go ahead 5-4 to four in the eighth inning on a Mike Sosha home run. So then in the ninth inning, Tom Needenfuhr, he's the Dodgers closer. He's just going to stay on for his third inning of work. It's going okay. He strikes out Cesar Cedeno and then gives up a single to Willie McGee, who steals second. Needenfuhr walks Ozzie Smith. Tommy Herr grounds out to first, so you have runners on second and third, with two outs. The tying and possible winning runs are in scoring position with two out and Jack Clark coming up. Meanwhile, in reading Lasorda talking about walk him and pitch to that blank, blank Van Slyke. That's what he just muttered in the dugout. Do I walk him and pitch to that so-and-so? He's not going to walk him. It is Jack Clark and Tom Needenfuhr going head-to-head, and the ball game on the line, and the crowd on its feet. One way or another, what a way to end. And he hits one to deep left field, and that one is gone. Needenfuhr said he planned to throw a fastball on the outside part of the plate. Clark said he was looking for a fastball. The ball that was delivered was not on the outside corner. Instead, it was right in the middle of the plate, about belt high. And Jack Clark put a furious swing on this ball. Deep, deep left field bleachers, 400 plus feet, just a huge home run. Tom Needenfuhr, after the game, said the only hope was that it would hit the Goodyear blimp and fall straight down. That's a good line. The Cardinals are ahead 7-5 and would hold on to win and go on to the World Series. Something that I notice about all of these videos of Jack Clark is his stance. His front foot is forward, but he doesn't stand in a straight line. So his front foot is forward and closer to the plate than his back foot. And he wiggles his bat, and then he just takes these huge cuts like a lumberjack. And it's really just an all-or-nothing swing, and he looks so angry when he's swinging. I included another video here. I think this one's just highlights of Jack Clark. The first one, I think, is really all you need to watch, where he's just 
hits a massive home run. Yeah, it is a very closed stance, 30 degrees closed toward the plate with his front foot. And in this video, he's just destroyed this ball. It's just all like arms and shoulders and just a full... And rage. And rage. (laughs) And the NLCS home run is exactly like that too. And there was a lot of rage behind it. And there's also this home run trot. It takes him so long to get around the bases. He knew that ball was long gone. There's no bat flip, but he rubbed it in. (laughs) You can also buy a Jack Clark autographed baseball. And we will include the link in the show notes if you want to buy one of these baseballs (laughs) for $52 that says, take that and F the Dodgers. (laughs) Signed by Jack Clark. That is classy as can be. Jack said, this was the biggest, furthest, most important hit of my career. That would be the only postseason home run of Jack Clark's 47 postseason at-bats. And in talking about that home run with St. Louis Post-Dispatch writer Rick Hummel, he said there was a lot of payback for a lot of reasons. For all those years in Candlestick Park, not only was it bad enough just having to play there, but the Dodgers kept whipping up on us every year. I had one mission, to seek and destroy everyone on that team, from Fernando Valenzuela to Oral Hershiser. I wanted it all. Hummel said the rage in Clark almost was uncontrollable when he faced the Dodgers. And I think he just had a lot of anger on the field and was able to focus that into productive hits. In the World Series against the Royals, he went 6-for-25, four singles, two doubles, had four RBIs, but didn't have a single moment that was as important as that NLCS home run, unless we want to talk about some negative moments, which I think we have to. He was involved in the George Orta-Don Denkinger incident in Game 6. Up three games to two, the Cardinals led one nothing in the bottom of the ninth. Orta hit a bouncing ball. Jack Clark ran to the ball and made a decent play, shoveling it to Todd Worrell, who was covering first. And umpire Don Denkinger called Orta safe. Replays showed Orta was out by half a step. This isn't Jack's fault. This is just a bad call by Denkinger. And the next batter was Steve Balboni, who hit a pop foul by the first base dugout. Clark and Porter both ran to the ball. It looks like they both lost track of the ball and just dropped closer to Clark. When you watch the video, looks like it's Jack Clark's fault. Daryl Porter, the catcher, is running toward the ball, but it ends up closer to Jack Clark, and so it looks like he just misplayed the ball. But later, Daryl Porter would acknowledge that he called for the ball, and so even though it ended up closer to Jack Clark, neither of them had a chance to get out of the way, It was a mistake, doesn't count as an error, but it should have been an out. Balboni would then single, there's a passed ball, and then Dane Orge would single home two runs to win that game. The next night, Kansas City won 11-0 to win that series. Unfortunately for Jack, after having the NLCS heroics, he didn't have a World Series ring to show for it. But he did make it to the World Series, which was one of his initial goals. The next year, 1986, Jack only appeared in 65 games. In June, he slid headfirst into third base. That's a that's a bad idea. Tore a ligament in his thumb. That required surgery, and he was out for the season. The Cardinals, missing their main power threat, fell under 500. But in 1987, Jack would rebound and have the biggest season of his career, and the Cardinals would win the National League East. And that gives us our second card. This is the National League All-Star card. 
card number 397, card number two. We've got Jack Clark. He's got a jersey. He's got a <laughs> jacket on over it, a windbreaker. Got a red hat and a big gap in his teeth. No gap in his eyebrows. Some of the all-star cards have looked better than this one. Uh, I think the best part of it is the mirroring of the stripe on the collar of his mesh shirt with the brim of his hat and also his unibrow. I just feel like these are, it's a very like geometrically pleasing card in that way, but the color scheme is kind of off. The red of his name and National League also matches the red of his jersey. It's okay. The back of the card has the 1987 National League leaders for on-base percentage. This is a good modern baseball metrics stat head kind of <laughs> card. Jack Clark, a ridiculous 459 on-base percentage. It has a fun fact that includes a couple of notable home runs. His two-run home run was big blow in Cardinals' 4-3 win at Houston, 5-23-1987. Belted grand slam as Redbirds won 8-2, completing three-game sweep at the Astrodome, 5-24-1987. Also that season, there were back-to-back games in June where Eric Davis robbed Jack Clark of home runs at Riverfront Stadium. Through the All-Star break, Jack Clark was challenging for the National League home run title and RBI title. At the All-Star break, he had 26 home runs and 86 RBIs. He was just on pace for a fantastic season. He goes over 30 home runs on August 9th. This is the first time a Cardinal did that since the early 70s. And partially that was because of the difficult hitters park that Bush Stadium was. Unfortunately, on September 9th, Jack injured himself, so he sprains, partially tears ligaments in his ankle. He's limited to only 131 games. He had just an outrageous season. Yeah, there's black ink on the back of this card for 1987. He hit 286, but had a major league leading 136 walks to give him a league leading on base percentage of 459 and a slugging percentage of 597. He hit 35 home runs and drove in 106. Led the majors with an OPS of 1.055. That's an OPS plus of 176, which also led the majors. He only made two plate appearances after September 9th. So that injury probably kept him from getting 40 home runs. Meanwhile, Andre Dawson hit 49 home runs and drove in 137. If Jack had been at 40 plus and 120 RBIs on a team that won the NL East, he probably would have won the MVP award. Teammate Ozzie Smith finished second, and Jack finished third, which probably prevented Ozzie from winning. Jack was named the Silver Slugger for National League first baseman, and the Cardinals make the playoffs playing against the Giants in the NLCS. Because of that injury, Jack made one plate appearance, and he struck out. He didn't play in the World Series against the Twins, and in a seven-game series, a close series, without their biggest slugger, Jack could have been the difference between St. Louis winning and losing that series, which they ultimately lost in seven games. His teammate, Ozzie Smith, said Jack was selfish for not taking, quote, a shot in order to keep playing. Jack replied in the press and said that the team (laughs) doctor told him a shot wouldn't have helped. He called Ozzie Smith a speck and said he was, quote, just getting brownie points for his contract with Augie Bush coming up. Even though he didn't play in the World Series that year, 
by virtue of the Cardinals making the National League Championship game, he did make the biggest stage of them all, RBI baseball. So now we go to the RBI corner and Brian. And we are back in the RBI corner. Brian, welcome back to the show. Here on this 200th card episode, and here to talk about the St. Louis Cardinals and Jack Clark. Great to be back. There are not 200 teams in RBI baseball. There are only 10 teams in RBI baseball, and the St. Louis Cardinals are one of them. They may claim to have the best fans in baseball, but I believe they do not have the best team in RBI baseball. I think I've said in a few times that in prior episodes that they may be the second worst team. We talked about them most recently in the John Tudor episode. I still think you should play with them, though. They're actually very fun to play with, especially because they're very much like a 1980s team. They feel like an artificial turf team as they're built around pitching and speed. Their pitching is very good. John Tudor is both excellent and left-handed, so he can be a great antidote against teams like Detroit as a lefty. They have Todd Morrell, who throws extremely hard out of their bullpen, and they have two righties and two lefties. You can have some matchup options and creativity when it comes to how you deploy your pitchers in a matchup. And their speed is incredible. The Cardinals are very fast. Uh, Vince Coleman is the game's fastest player. They also have Ozzie Smith and Millie McGee, who are iconic players from the 80s and thus very fun to play with. Uh, Tom Hearn and Terry Pendleton, also very fast, although you might not want to keep Tom Hearn in your lineup. And they have a very left-handed lineup. Now, that's not necessarily so great given their tendency to pull the ball and the fact that a lot of those players hit the ball on the ground. But nevertheless, they're pretty fun to play with, except that they have... No power whatsoever, with the exception of one player. And that's a player who has power equivalent to Jim Rice, Mike Schmidt, Rupert Jones, or Gary Gaetti in RBI Baseball. And we'll get into that player in just a second. Yeah, because I'm guessing it's Jack Clark. It is indeed Jack Clark. Jack Clark is that player. He's the one power source in the St. Louis Cardinals lineup. He's also one of only two righties in the lineup, along with Tony Pena, who we covered in a previous episode. Unlike the other Cardinals, he's also very, very slow. But that's not what he's there for. So you don't mind it when your cleanup hitter, as he bats fourth in the Cardinals lineup, is hitting for power. Now, he's behind Vince Coleman, Ozzie Smith, and Tom Herr, assuming you keep her in. Those are guys who can get on base with their speed. So you kind of are playing for the three-run homer when you're playing with the Cardinals because you want those players on base so that when Jack Clark comes up, he can hit that three-run shot. Another way to think about Jack Clark is if you play with the Houston team, he's kind of like the good version of Glenn Davis. Glenn Davis is powerful, but he doesn't hit that many home runs. But unlike Glenn Davis, Jack Clark is the real deal in RBI baseball. I really think that without Jack Clark, the Cardinals might have the worst lineup in this game, as there's simply no other power source in the lineup. So obviously with that power, you'd keep him in the lineup. But we've talked throughout the show about the fact that Jack Clark gets so many walks and is so slow. So if you're playing against Jack Clark, do you ever pitch to him? There are people who will say if you're playing the Cardinals because there's no other power anywhere else in the lineup, and if you know what you're doing, you can kind of cut down on speed through throwing the ball more quickly, you should just walk Jack Clark every time up. I don't subscribe to that theory. I say you pitch to Jack Clark, you try to work around him perhaps a little bit. Maybe it's arrogance on my part, but I say take your chances. Try to get Jack Clark out by jamming him or try to pitch him outside. You might walk him in key situations and you want to tread carefully, but I say go ahead and pitch to Jack Clark. 
Brian, we've talked about the look of the players in RBI baseball. Is there an eyebrow, perhaps a, a unibrow effect for the players in RBI baseball? Do you get to see their faces? <laughs> their faces, I believe, are just kind of smoothed over like a baby's <laughs> bottom. So there is no eyebrow that I'm aware of. They do have that large bulbous helmet and large head. So I guess those players that kind of have the, the, the huge helmets obviously we saw some of those players in the late 90s and early 2000s uh with their hat sizes growing they kind of look like rbi baseball players but no unibrow to speak of across the game well luckily we all have faces made for podcasting so no problems here thanks again brian and we'll see you next time thanks guys take care After that huge season in 1987, hitting for power in the cavernous Bush Stadium, Jack's contract was up. Whitey Herzog said, we'd have never won the 85 and 87 pennants without him. The Cardinals wanted to re-sign Jack, and in November, the sides were pretty close to terms on a two-year deal with $2 million a year. The Cardinals wanted a lower base salary with playing time incentives. They wanted Jack to play at least 145 games before he got his full salary. Jack's agents wanted to max out at 125 or 130 games. Jack also asked for a $250,000 loan, which the Cardinals described as more like just giving him $2.25 million. (laughs) Then on December 7th, Jack's agents say that they're at an impasse and they're open to other offers. And so we have another card. That's right. We have card number 28T from the traded set. And pulling that up on the Jumbotron right here, we have Jack Clark with the New York Yankees, wearing a Yankees batting helmet, wearing a Yankees starter jacket over a blue t-shirt. This photo taken in parts unknown. Jack looking up and to the right with kind of a vacant stare and a very bright flash used by the photographer. Well, not for the first time, David. We have the Yankees snapping up an aging player with a big deal. He signs a two-year deal worth $3 million plus a $1 million in incentives to play in New York. And on paper, this would make for a really good offense in 1988. Don Mattingly, Willie Randolph, Ricky Henderson, Dave Winfield, and Jack Clark now. That sounds pretty good. Pitching was always the problem with the Yankees. They traded away a lot of their pitching prospects. They did not have a great pitching staff at this point. Initially, Jack was playing DH for Billy Martin. The team was playing pretty well. They're in first place in early June. Then they get swept by the Tigers, knocks him out of the lead. Billy gets fired. And then they bring in Lou Pinella. And they trade for Ken Phelps. So you have another DH... You just picked up Jack Clark coming off one of the biggest years in baseball, and you trade for an aging Ken Phelps. And <laughs> Jack has moved to the outfield. He'd been playing first base for years, and he learned that he was playing outfield in front of a bunch of reporters and said, what kind of is this? Once again, David, strange management choices being made by the New York Yankees, a recurring theme in the series. The Yankees end up in fifth place but only three and a half games out of first. Jack had an okay season at the plate, considering offense was down league-wide. He had 27 homers, 93 driven in, 113 walks in 150 games, so he was on base all the time. But he fought with Lou Pinella and demanded a trade. Another interesting thing is that we saw with the Tom Bernanski episode 
the Cardinals weren't able to replace Jack's power. So instead of signing a two-year deal worth $4 million with the Cardinals, they keep their power-hitting first baseman. He signs for $3 million plus a million in incentives. I didn't look to see if he actually made those incentives. He did play 150 games, including some in the outfield. It seems like this was maybe not the right choice to go to New York instead of signing with the Cardinals. And the Cardinals end up trading for Tom Bernanski. They can't replace that power. Just a mistake. And Jack didn't like the American League. In fact, he said he hated that damn league. He said all the games last three and a half to four hours. (laughs) It's true, Jack. The trade comes three weeks after the season ends. Jack is sent to the Padres for outfielder Stan Jefferson and pitchers Jimmy Jones and Lance McCullers Sr. Jefferson had 12 at-bats for the Yankees. Jones pitched in 28 games in two seasons with a 68 ERA+. McCullers was traded away in 1990 for Matt Noakes. The Yankees got Matt Noakes out of the steal, I guess. Jack said of San Diego, this is my last stop, period. Not quite, but he was there for a couple of rocky years. He started slow, hitting 193 through two months, but he would heat up, and at the end of the year, he would be the team's leader with 26 home runs, 94 RBIs. He led the majors with 132 walks. That helped make up for a 242 batting average, he had a 148 OPS+. Plus. This Padres team was a surprise. They had Ed Whitson and Bruce Hurst pitching well and Cy Young Award winner Mark Davis. They won 89 games and finished three games behind San Francisco. Jack Clark at this point was their only power threat, and opponents decided to pitch around him. Behind him were guys like Chris James, Marvell Wynn, Benito Santiago, and Gary Templeton. In 1990, injuries limited him again, and his mouth got him in trouble again. He had a back injury, and then when he came back, he re-injured himself pulling on a sock. We've been there. We've you hit a certain it. age, you can't yeah. put your socks on, you sneeze, and you, you know, then you can't walk for a week. Every day's a struggle, Jack. Then he was hit in the cheek by a throw during outfield warm-ups. Oh, that is not a graceful thing either. This requires surgery. We see another continuing trend, which is when Jack's body is on the mend, his mouth goes on the attack. While he was recovering, Jack was part of a vocal segment of the team grumbling about Tony Gwynn. There are no sacred cows here. (laughs) Jack Clark is fighting with Ozzie Smith and Tony Gwynn. I can't think of two people who are more beloved in baseball. You know, Lou Piniella, whatever. But (laughs) Tony Gwynn, who has a problem with Tony Gwynn? Apparently, some players on the Padres did. And at this time, if you look at his stats, Tony Gwynn was not at his best. 1987, Tony Gwynn stole 50-plus bases. By this point, he's still leading the league in hitting, but he's not getting on base quite as much. There's grumbling. Manager Jack McKeon calls a team meeting. Jack threw a can of root beer that exploded and then (laughs) called Tony Gwynn a, quote, selfish SOB. Tony physically came at Jack Clark, and they were just screaming at each other with an earshot of reporters. And Clark said that Gwynn was more concerned about his stats than winning. And others on the team agreed. He wasn't the only one who was complaining. Gwynn did win his third straight batting title in 1989, but his defense was bad. In 1990, he had one of his worst offensive years, but he still hit 309. His OPS Plus was only 112 compared to Jack's 167. But a lot of Jack's value was coming from walks. And Gwynn went after Jack and said he walked too much for a number four hitter. 
and he also criticized Jack for not joining the team on team flights. Jack would take his own flight to go be home with his family, even if it meant flying across the country to spend eight hours with his family. And then he would fly back and join the team after the off day. At this point, his daughter was 10 years old. He didn't take too kindly to this criticism. But the walk criticism is kind of interesting. Because at this point, there's nobody really batting behind Jack Clark. So what's he supposed to do? Just swing at garbage pitches to try to drive in Tony Gwynn? It wasn't really his fault that nobody could hit behind him. The team's a mess. Jack McKeon's fired halfway through the season. He's replaced by Greg Riddick. And so while all this is going on, Clark got healthy and ends up having a pretty good year despite missing 50 games. He had 266 to end the year, but led the National League in walks again. He hit 25 home runs, but drove in only 62 runs and scored only 59 runs. So that means from 168 times on base, if you subtract out his home runs, he only scored 34 times from his 168 times on base, which shows that once he was on the base paths, he was going to stay there. After taking a shot at the biggest name in San Diego baseball, Jack was out. He said he knew he couldn't return. When manager Riddick fired the trainer, Dick Dent, who was one of Jack's favorites in San Diego. But San Diego also decided they were done and they didn't re-sign Jack. Jack called Riddick one of the biggest all-time snakes I've ever seen. Not just a snake, but a snake. Meanwhile, Tony Gwynn would call Riddick one of the best teachers ever of the game. We'll leave it to the listener to decide. So Jack's a free agent. He signs a three-year, $8.7 million deal with the Red Sox. He goes to camp. And despite his history of difficult relations with teammates, Mo Vaughn is a rookie and said that he was surprised when Jack Clark came every day to work out with him every morning during spring training. This wasn't what he had heard about Jack Clark. Clark was healthy for most of the year, and he had a decent season. So in his 17th season, he hit 28 home runs and drove in 87. The Red Sox finished second in the American League East. But in 1992, it all fell apart. Jack was distracted, he's in the second year of this three-year contract, and he declares bankruptcy. He had listed debts of more than $11.4 million and assets of $4.8 million in his filings. He was listed as having bought 18 automobiles, including a 1990 Ferrari that cost $700,000. Three Mercedes-Benz cars cost between $100,000 and $140,000. He owed money on 17 of the cars and was liable for 400000 in federal and state taxes, and he also lost a million dollars in a drag racing venture. So there were, in total, 50 claims against him, totaling $7.5 million. Meanwhile, on the field, he played in only 81 games. Clearly, his mind was elsewhere, and he was also having to travel back and forth for court appearances, and he hit 210. The next year, he reported for his final season out of shape. He had to make trips back home to court. The Red Sox released him. He signed with the Expos, but never played because his wife said that she and the four kids were being threatened with eviction. So Jack retired, closing the book on Jack Clark, 18 seasons in the major leagues, almost 2,000 games, 1,994, with a batting average of 267, 340 home runs, 1,826 hits, 1,180 RBIs, and 1,262 walks, and a 137 OPS plus that makes him 105th all-time in home runs and 53rd in walks. 
He's valued at 53.1 war for his career, which is 176th among position players. He made four all-star games, won two silver sluggers, and he won the 1985 home run derby. Any Hall of Fame votes? He was first on the ballot in 1998, and he got seven votes. That's 1.5%, so he was knocked off after one ballot. His Hall of Stats rating, thanks to friend of the pod, Adam Dorowski, he is a 96. He's in the top 1.3%, but just below the 100 required for a statistical Hall of Famer. How about in retirement? When Jack retired, he was dealing with bankruptcy, and he got lucky with the timing of the collusion settlement with owners and MLBPA. Jack ended up awarded $4.4 million. He was able to sell some homes, cars, and use that settlement money to pay off his entire debt bill. The attorney who was involved said this was basically unheard of in bankruptcy cases. He was able to settle the entirety of his $7.5 million in claims against him. So he goes into coaching. Jack has said that baseball was everything he knew, so he decided to stay in it. And it turned out that that they had trouble right there in River City. No, this wasn't a ransom. This was the River City Rascals, who were a new Frontier League team, and they hired Jack. Also, Dick Schofield was one of his coaches. Jack managed for one year. He then joined the Dodgers as a minor league hitting instructor. And in 2001, Tommy Lasorda recommended that the Dodgers hire him as their big league hitting coach. He did that for a couple seasons. But in 2003, right before the season opener, he was riding his motorcycle and was involved in a serious accident. He had a concussion, eight broken ribs, cuts to his face and head, and he couldn't coach for a few months. The Dodgers were pretty bad in 2003, and Jack ended up fired that year. He coached for some independent league teams, including the Mid-Missouri Mavericks and my favorite collegiate wood baseball bat league, the Springfield Sliders. While with the Sliders... The local news criticized him for missing 10 of the team's 26 home games. And yes, local news in Springfield does cover the collegiate wood bat league. That's a shocking amount of absences for the manager to miss. I have heard that Jack Clark was not happy about this story from a source close to the the SJR. Jack's trend of aggression toward the media and in the media continued as he got a job doing cards pre- and post-game shows. And then in 2010, he, on the air, said the Cardinals have got poopy in their pants and were quitters. It didn't go over well. And then starting in August 2013, he was co-hosting a radio show called The King and the Ripper. And on that show, like two weeks into the show... He said he knew for a fact that Albert Pujols used performance-enhancing drugs. He claimed he had talked to a former Pujols personal trainer. He also accused Justin Verlander of PED usage, a claim Verlander said was, quote, moronic. Pujols threatened a defamation lawsuit, and the trainer in question said that he hadn't talked to Clark in a decade. After seven shows, the program was canceled and Clark apologized. In 2018, he ended up filing for bankruptcy a second time. At this point, he had assets of 25000 and liabilities over 500000 He had attempted to start flipping houses and built up a lot of business-related debt. As of 2022, he's still living in the St. Louis area. He still does public events and signing appearances, and hopefully he's gotten some of his financial issues under control. Well, David, this was a long one. 
We started with a card of a heavy hitter who we knew was one of the best hitters of the 70s and 80s. But now we have kind of a tragic story of a guy who filed bankruptcy twice, who seemed to be in the middle of conflict everywhere he went. So now looking back on it, what what should we think? I remember this card and Jack Clark's stats, and partially that's because of RBI Baseball and another Nintendo game that I had where it had all of the guy's stats from the 87 season. Jack Clark was a heavy hitter. He was one of the best sluggers in baseball. And for a time period, he was one of the top 10 best players in baseball in the 80s. And if he had been able to stay healthy, Jack Clark would probably be in the Hall of Fame. In the 1980s, there were 229 players with at least 2,500 plate appearances. Jack Clark was 7th in OPS+, tied with Don Mattingly, behind only Daryl Strawberry, Pedro Guerrero, George Brett, Wade Boggs, and Mike Schmidt. Just fantastic in the decade of the 80s. 10th in home runs, 14th in RBIs, 3rd in walks, and all that while missing significant playing time due to injuries. Among any player in baseball history with 5,000-plus plate appearances, his 137 OPS Plus is tied for 83rd. He's tied with Giancarlo Stanton, Pedro Guerrero, Will Clark. And interestingly, he wore number 22 for the Giants, the same number as Will Clark. In 2022, Will Clark was honored in San Francisco by the Giants when they retired his number. They didn't retire Jack Clark's number 22. But Jack Clark probably deserves some respect in San Francisco as well, but he was never as beloved as Will Clark, and he didn't like it there. He didn't have the big years that the Thrill had, and he didn't play in the playoffs, but he was a really good player for the Giants over 10 years. 163 home runs, two all-star games, a 134 OPS+. But his career is a lot of what-ifs. Without injuries, Jack Clark easily would have had over 400 home runs. From 1978 to 1991, he averaged 23 home runs a season, but only averaged 124 games a season. So if you add 25 more games each of those years, he averages closer to 30 home runs. That's closer to 450 homers. He had a good arm, but injuries that limited him at the plate also limited his ability to play in the outfield, forced him to first base and then into DH. In the modern game, he would have been a DH much earlier. Jack Clark's attitude may have limited him as well and may have pushed him along from team to team. Bob Nepper himself, quite a piece of work, a guy with some questionable public statements, said, One thing about Jack, he didn't like anybody telling him anything. And we talked a little bit about Jack's relationship with his dad and what may have set him up for this struggle with authority. And in this article about Jack's relationship with his dad... Ralph was asked, are you proud of your son? Ralph says, always have been. And the reporter said, have you ever said it to him? And Ralph said, no. Jack's isn't our saddest story. We have guys who've passed away and guys who've struggled with a lot of addictions. But Jack clearly went through some things. And the way it came off publicly was that he would pop off, that he was kind of surly, that he was kind of a jerk. On the field, That translated into a powerful swing, huge home runs, and this outburst of rage on the field. And Jack took his dad's anger and unpredictability, that verbal and emotional abuse, and turned it into this series of grudges that drove him to a successful career. In The Last Dance, Michael Jordan was shown to have these 
these little grudges that were personal to him that he would pick somebody and, and treat it like they had done something personal to him. And that was the way that Jack Clark did with Gary Renicky, with his teammates, with his coaches. And throughout his career, he was constantly trying to prove himself that he is better than someone, better than colleagues, teammates. He played mad, but he's not the worst person we've talked about. Mo Vaughn was surprised by Jack's willingness to help guide him along the way. Another story about that teammate, Greg Johnston, the classmate who talked Jack into staying with his high school team. Out of the blue in Florida, he comes up to Jack and tells him he's in trouble and needs money. And Jack gave him $500. And he said, hey, I had the money, even if maybe Jack didn't have the money. I also reached out to a friend of the show, Daniel, from the Pop Fly Pop Shop. He recently did a art piece of The Ripper, and he had an online interview with Jack Clark. And I watched the interview, and Jack Clark was friendly and funny and engaging. And I asked Daniel, what was your experience like with him? And he had nothing but nice things to say about Jack Clark. He said he was generous with his time. He was kind. That public persona, that gregariousness, is totally different from this surly guy that we see kind of snarling on some of these cards or that we hear in some of these negative quotes. And so his legacy is sound bites and and some bad luck, but he was really a great player who would be much more appreciated in today's game. But for a bad call in the 1985 World Series, he would have been a World Series champ as well. But really what stands out to me are a couple things. One, such a rough relationship with his dad, and it feels like he never grew out of it, regardless of that most recent experience uh, with Daniel. It sounded like throughout his career that anger was his motivation, and that well, it helped some of his performance. It caused conflict on his team and in the media and everyone else, and that just kind of sours his reputation, which is unfortunate because he had a, so much talent and was such a good player. The other thing is that being injured is no joke. We see every time he's coming back from an injury, he's on the sideline and he's chirping at the other players saying they're no good and that he could do better. It is really a hard thing for athletes to be injured. And teams nowadays take a lot better care of their athletes of trying to help them recover mentally and physically from injuries. So one of the other what ifs of that is not just missing that time, but how the injuries affected him emotionally and and with his relationships too. I think that when things were going well for him in 1985 and in 1987, you don't see those negative stories until he's injured and you don't see them until there's struggles. And so when things are going great, he's a great teammate. And exactly like you said, then he gets injured. Then he's got some time to think about it. He's got some time to talk to the media And I think that he never said no to a reporter, and it just led to him saying things that maybe were inconsistent throughout and got him in trouble. When people were talking about him, he had no problem with the media then. And when people were praising him, he had no problem with his coaches or teammates then, just when things went bad. But thank you for the story today, David, and thank you to you at home. If you've got a $700,000 Ferrari for sale, just reach out to us on threads. We're at 1988 Tops Podcast. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.